Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day. We appreciate it. Here we are at midweek. The next two days, I will be in San Antonio, Texas for Commodity Classic. I'll be broadcasting from the trade show floor. I'll be in the Cinex booth tomorrow and the UPL booth on Friday. Coming up on our program today, we're going to be talking with Paul Blyberg with the National Milk Producers Federation about efforts to get the Dairy Pride Act passed and why it's so important to get these labeling issues for dairy products addressed by FDA. It's been a long battle, and they're hoping to get some action soon, but quite honestly, they've been working for this and hoping for this for some time, but we'll get an update. Also, um, ARC and PLC payments that farmers have to make. Uh, this time it's a two-year commitment, not a five, but still big decisions, and some things have changed since last uh, time the decision was made. We're going to talk with Jonathan Coppice from the University of Illinois. He has some really good information that farmers can look at to help make those decisions. They have a, uh, some resource material on the website for you to be able to take a look at, too. So we'll talk about that with Jonathan Coppice about ARC and PLC. And then also coming up today, some comments from Ryan Finley. CEO of the American Soybean Association, ASA, one of the ag groups, over 20 of them that have gone together to form a coalition to deal with the sustainability issue and how to address the climate change debate and how agriculture needs to be part of that conversation. So all that coming up. But first, start off today looking at farm safety, especially grain bin safety. I talked recently with Doug Gooker, University of Illinois Extension Specialist, about just how quickly accidents can occur in these grain bins. Yes, and, and particularly this year, uh, after last fall, we put up a lot of grain that was low test weight and high moisture, and those are, are two combinations that either one can lead to a rapid deterioration in the quality of stored grain, but you put both of them together, and it's a situation that requires very careful management and, and sometimes uh, pulling grain out of uh, storage much quicker than we had originally intended. I was reading an article that you wrote recently, again, showing just how quickly things can happen in a grain bin. Adults can be trapped in less than five seconds and submerged in 20 seconds or less. Small children can quickly be suffocated. Uh, again, it just basically a grain bin, you're stepping into quicksand. Yes, and uh, having been a guinea pig for some of these grain safety demonstrations in the past uh, and being sucked down to my waist or close to my waist uh, uh, in grain, uh, once it got to my knees, I, I might as well have had my, my, my shoes in uh, cement. I wasn't going anywhere. And so it, what are some things farmers quick. can do? What are some well, things farmers can do? The first thing they need to do is never go into a grain bin alone. Never go in there alone. And the other uh, issue is is that if they have a crusting problem in that bin or they turn the fans on and they're noticing a musty odor coming out, uh, probably their first question is, 
they're going to have a problem unloading that bin to start with. And so the hope of trying to get crusty grain down through that center hole in the bin may not work at all. And so we need to give some serious thought before we get in there. We don't want to get into that bin because if it has a crust, it could give way and suddenly we're down waist deep or completely submerged, as has happened recently in an accident, and, and a life is lost. Uh, we need to go in with lifelines. We need to make sure we have ladders in working order on the inside of the bin and never go in a bin without someone being nearby that can quickly get help if things turn sideways. If you're with someone and you know they're trapped in a grain bin, what can you do? What's the first thing you should do to get help? Uh, first thing to do is make sure everything is turned off uh, except for the aeration fan. Turn the aeration fan on. Uh, try and get some fresh air moving through the, through that bin. Uh, so if it is out of quality and moldy grain, uh, that poor person stuck in the grain is not just breathing in moldy air, which could then cause an entirely different problem for that individual. Turn the aeration fans on, get fresh air moving through that grain, and call uh, call their local uh, emergency squad to get out there as soon as possible because they're going to have to cut a hole in that bin and, and relieve that pressure. I've watched some of the uh, work that the rescue uh, personnel and departments uh go through uh they're being trained more and more to deal with these grain bin situations aren't they because they have yeah. to they have to have expertise and uh, once they get on the scene yes and and they have to be trained so that they themselves don't become mm-hmm. trapped uh, be, become victims inside the bin as well, which has happened, unfortunately, uh, in the past. Not happening much anymore with our volunteer fire departments because of the good training that they're getting. And in the past, uh, I know we have done uh, training for uh, local fire departments. And yes, they are trained. They know where to make those cuts in the bin. They just don't do it haphazard because they don't want to unintentionally uh, cause more grain to flow on someone who who's stuck inside that grain. Very important to make sure that uh, entrances to grain handling areas are locked, that, that, you, that children, uh, other bystanders just can't uh, accidentally wind up in those situations. Exactly. We, our, our key thing is, is uh, before we get into a, a grain bin, take a deep breath, uh, possibly take, take a long pole with you, uh, because if it looks like it, it's, uh, we've got corn going out of condition and you prod it, prod it, and it breaks apart in clumps, um, that's your sign that you, you're going to have a bin full of problems and you need to make another p- plan on how you're going to deal with it besides getting in there and walking on that crusted grain and thinking you're going to get it to flow smoothly and evenly out through the center sump of that bin. Uh, it just doesn't happen that way. It, it's going to be a, a dirty, ugly process and uh, we need to realize that if it's gone out of condition, we're going to have to make other plans on how we're going to unload that bin. 
So be careful, be prepared. I mean, no one thinks it's going to happen, but it can happen and can happen just so quickly. Uh, so don't take anything for right. granted. Be be prepared, right? Right. And farmers and, and people need to realize that on a warm February day, even though it's very cold, and we had a warm day this last week where we had full sunshine, temperature was about freezing but with no wind it felt like a summer day because you could you didn't need that heavy winter coat on because of the full sunshine well think of the south facing wall of your your grain storage facility it's absorbing 1700 BTUs per square foot per day it's absorbing a tremendous amount of heat all right Doug we're out of time Good reminders Thank for you. us. Doug Gooker, University of Illinois Extension Specialist during this Grain Bin Safety Week. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Whether you're on the road or in the field, you need more than typical number two diesel. You need a heavy-duty diesel like Cenex Premium Diesel. It comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. It's the diesel that keeps your equipment out of the shop and restores power by as much as 4.5% and fuel economy by up to 5%. So ask yourself, if you could be any diesel, which diesel would you be? Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, we see this tragic news all too often about death occurring in a grain bin accident. Joining us now is University of Illinois Extension Specialist Doug Gooker. If you're with someone and you know they're trapped in a grain bin, what's the first thing you should do to get help? First thing to do is make sure everything is turned off except for the aeration fan. Turn the aeration fan on. Uh, try and get some fresh air moving through the, through that bin. Uh, so if it is out of quality and moldy grain, uh, that poor person stuck in the grain is not just breathing in moldy air, which could then cause an entirely different problem for that individual, and call their local emergency squad to get out there as soon as possible because they're going to have to cut a hole in that bin and, and relieve that pressure. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Farmers can't choose the weather, trade policy, or market prices, but they can choose the most advanced dicamba with confidence. Ingenia Herbicide has the lowest volatility of all dicamba salts for more successful on-target applications, and it's straight from the dicamba experts, BASF. So make the confident choice for your soybean crop. Talk to your BASF rep or authorized retailer. Ingenia Herbicide is a U.S. EPA-restricted-use pesticide. Additional state restrictions may apply. Always read and follow label directions. Corn, soybean, and cotton growers are in a race against time when it comes to hard-to-kill weeds. Interline herbicide from UPL works fast to eliminate some of the most challenging glyphosate-resistant weeds, including pigweed, water hemp, mare's tail, and ragweed. Interline can be used as a burn-down treatment or as an over-the-top treatment in glufosinate-tolerant crops, including Liberty Link varieties. Ask your retailer or UPL sales representative about Interline, and always read and follow label directions. 180 over 111 and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92 and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100 and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke. Everything changed. 
It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. I had to tell everything's changed. I had to tell. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Thursday on Adams and Agriculture, I'll be broadcasting from Commodity Classic in San Antonio. We'll discuss efforts to fight SCN and get the latest on market development work from the U.S. Grains Council. Be sure to join us Thursday on Adams on Agriculture. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. 58 members of the House of Representatives recently wrote the FDA commissioner urging the agency to quickly finish and act upon its examination of how to enforce regulations defining what may be labeled as a dairy product. Here to talk about that is Paul Blyberg, Vice President, Government Relations for the National Milk Producers Federation. Paul, thanks for joining us. Uh, How long has it been now when we were excited that FDA kind of said they would start looking at this? And uh, here we are still waiting for some action. Yeah, it's been almost two years now. I think it was uh, mm. July or August of 2018 when then-Commissioner Gottlieb made his now-famous comment that an almond doesn't lactate, and we were very encouraged that uh, FDA was going to be beginning a process. But as we've said previously, uh, 2019 as a full year came and went with no action. So uh, we are glad that Congress is continuing to keep pressure on Yeah, so basically, as we have said before, this is a matter of enforcing existing regulations, not creating something new. That's exactly right. This is a matter of enforcing existing standards of identity that have been on the books for a very long time, that were created in the interest of fair dealing for consumers and making sure that people have accurate information about the products that they're buying. Because in the meantime, what we have seen now, it seems it seems like every day we see some new uh, product coming out uh, that's an imitation dairy type of product. Uh, not only milk products, but butter and things like that. I mean, it, it, there are just a number of them coming out. There has to be some consumer confusion, I would think. And, and, there, and there absolutely is, and survey data bears that out, that majority of consumers surveyed in, in survey from a couple of years ago believe that, for instance, almond-based beverages have as much or more protein than real milk, when in reality, milk has up to eight times as much. And so there is a misperception out there and a lot of confusion because when these products have the dairy terms on them, they're using, they're trying to use the health halo of dairy. And I think it's not just a concern we have, it's a concern that the public health community has. It you know, came up at the hearing a few weeks ago a little bit, but various groups at pediatrics, American Heart Association have weighed in on this. No 
noting that if you're going you're to make decisions about what to feed young kids, for the most part, they should not be fed plant-based imitation products as an alternative to cow's milk because their nutrition profiles aren't really equivalent. And in cases where that has happened, there have been cases of kids having nutritional deficiencies because parents bought something under the you know, good intention but mistaken belief that the products were similar and they weren't. We mentioned 58 members of the House sending a letter, signing a letter, sending it to uh, FDA. Now, many of those same members of Congress are also uh, supporting the Dairy Pride Act, aren't they? Yeah, many of those members in both parties are co-sponsors and and as well as the authors, obviously, of the Dairy Pride Act legislation that's been introduced in the House and the Senate, uh, which we testified on at the Energy and Commerce Committee a number of weeks ago to compel FDA to act. And where where does that legislation stand? Well, we had the hearing at the end of January. Our, uh, our executive vice president, Tom Bomber, testified there before Congress and engaged on the issue with a number of members in both parties. And, uh, you know, we're going to be continuing our conversations with the bill sponsors and others, you know, on the Energy and Commerce Committee and in the Congress in general to figure out next steps and a path forward to, uh, to moving legislation. It's only February, so there's many months still in the year to go, and we will be continuing that process. The legislation would designate foods that make an inaccurate claim about milk contents as misbranded and then subject them to enforcement of labeling rules, but it still would require FDA to do something, right? That's correct. Uh, the legislation does require that, uh, that FDA take action on how it's going to enforce. We're talking with Paul Bleiberg, Vice President of Government Relations for the National Milk Producers Federation. So FDA... Now with two commissioners basically saying, yeah, they support this idea of, uh, of uh, you know, upholding the regulations on, on labeling, but so far it's, it's more words than action. Well, and, and that's why we thought this letter was such a good thing, and we were so heartened to see 58 bipartisan members uh, weighing in, as well as the several senators that sent a letter a number of weeks ago, because obviously Dr. Hahn has only recently taken office as the commissioner of the FDA, and he had some comments during his confirmation hearing in an exchange with Senator Tammy Baldwin from Wisconsin that we took some encouragement from as far as, okay, his interest in the topic, but you know, obviously action hasn't occurred yet, and I think the value in the congressional pressure, both from the House and the Senate, is to move the issue up the commissioner's radar as much as possible as something that's going to be significant for members. For a long time, Paul, and the dairy industry has been dealing with this for many, many years, but for a long time you were kind of uh, the, the lone industry out there calling for this, but now we're seeing these imitation products, whether they be pork or beef or poultry, whatever it may be. So I would think you would have some, uh, some more allies in this now. Yeah, I think that's true that there are a lot of different uh folks in the ag and food space now that have this concern about, you know, what is real, what is fake and, and, and labeling and making sure people have correct information. And that's the point we've been making. This is a really a truth in labeling and giving consumers accurate information in the name of public health. Because when people make, like I said earlier, well-intentioned but misinformed decisions, there end up being health consequences to it. And it's not a matter of keeping someone else from entering a product into the marketplace. It's just a matter of uh, fair representation, labeling, and accurate information so the consumers are not misled. That's correct. There's nothing in the Dairy Pride Act or in any of these uh, comments that we've submitted or anything members of Congress have said that suggests that these products shouldn't exist and be sold. It's a, it's a function of what are they labeled and what are they representing to be. 
So do you get any indication at all from FDA if they're close to making some kind of announcement on this, or is it just, as we keep hearing, under consideration? Well, obviously, you know, with the new commissioner, I think we're, we're still trying to get as clear a sense as we uh, as we can. But, uh, you know, as you said, we, we've been hearing for a while under consideration, under consideration, and so on, and we've not seen action. So the, the urgency for passing the legislation is, is becoming greater and greater. So... Getting this Dairy Pride Act through is key. Always tough to get something passed in Congress, especially these days. How optimistic are you about this getting through anytime soon? Well, I think we just have to keep making our case. I think we were really excited to have the opportunity to testify at the hearing. We thought that was a good step, and we we wanted to grab that moment there. And I think we had a good showing that day as far as the questions we were able to answer and the information we were able to provide. And uh, as you said, it's it's tough to get bills through. It's an election year. There are a lot of pressures around the election, uh, but we're going to make the best uh, the best effort we can. Is there any organized opposition to the Dairy Pride Act? Um, there, there's not, uh, I don't think, a large lobbying campaign, I would say, but the, you know, the definitely folks on the, on, the, on the plant-based side of the industry have raised concerns, obviously, from their standpoint, because I think they've, they obviously wouldn't be <laughs> fans of, the, of this approach, even though, as I said, all we're, all we're saying is accurate labeling in the name of public health and giving consumers information that they need when they make purchasing decisions, which was the whole point of standards of identity. So if they want to be against that, they can make that case to Congress. But I don't think it's a very compelling case. You know, every time I see uh, a commercial uh, for these new products that are out there, whether they be dairy or beef or pork or whatever, I think, you know, for those who say, well, what's the big deal about this? Well, obviously there's a value in a name like milk or dairy or, in other cases, beef or pork. Otherwise, these new products, these new companies coming along with these new products wouldn't be using those, wouldn't be trying to capitalize and take, you know, use it to their full advantage. That's exactly right. And that's the point we make is that in, in most other countries, this is not an issue at all because the products are correctly labeled. And moreover, some of the products that are sold in other countries are actually manufactured here in the United States, and they are correctly labeled because the, the product makers know they have to comply with the laws of other countries because of enforcement. But they can get away with using the dairy terms over here because FDA has fallen down on the job for all this time. And so they deliberately do it for one reason and one reason only. As you just said, it's to take advantage of dairy's good name. If it worrying about that, there'd be no reason to use the term since there's not the nutritional similarity. It's not the same product. It's just because they want to try to convince people that it is. And based on the survey data I mentioned, it's certainly a case. People are going out and buying these products under the misconception in a lot of cases that there's a nutritional equivalence that's not really there. In some ways, imitation may be a compliment, but not in this case. That's exactly right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so the the push continues again it's been going on for some time now and I know it has to be frustrating especially now with these new products coming out but uh, at least it's giving you a chance to make a, a stronger push with FDA hopefully they'll be open to the uh, to getting something done rather than just saying they're going to keep looking at it so Paul and thank you for the update yeah go ahead thank you for having me on all right. Well, well. Hopefully, we'll talk soon and talk about. Hey, they're finally doing something on this. So, uh, we're, we're we've been waiting for that day for a long time, but hopefully, we're getting closer. Thanks a lot, Paul. Thanks, Mike. Paul Blyberg, he's vice president, government R- relations for the National Milk Producers Federation.
There's more than one way to measure success. Knowing how to measure success on your soybean acres, that's smart. In 2019, trials across 10 Midwest states, credenced soybeans with Liberty Link GT27 averaged 1.8 bushels per acre more than the competitive Enlist E3 soybeans and 1.5 bushels per acre more than the competitive Roundup Ready to Extend soybeans. So plant your sign of success. Ask your BASF seed advisor about credenced with Liberty Link GT27. Always read and follow label directions. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Time is money, right? And money? Well, it's the whole reason we go to work every day. Cenex Premium Diesel protects both. With a more complete additive package for a more complete burn, Cenex Roadmaster XL helps your entire fuel system stay up and running so you can count more profits and steer clear of losses. Now, don't spend all that free time in one place, unless it's the highway. Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Corn, soybean, and cotton growers are in a race against time when it comes to -to hard-to-kill weeds. Interline herbicide from UPL works fast to eliminate some of the most challenging glyphosate-resistant weeds, including pigweed, waterhemp, mare's tail, and ragweed. Interline can be used as a burn-down treatment or as an over-the-top treatment in glufosinate-tolerant crops, including Liberty Link varieties. Ask your retailer or UPL sales representative about Interline and always read and follow label directions. Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture for the American Ag Network. I'm Kirsten Rall. Grain futures on the Board of Trade were little changed overnight and continue that an hour into the trading session as traders are unsure of what direction markets will take in reaction to the continuing spread of the coronavirus. Brazil reported its first case of the disease last night, while the CDC says that it expects the disease to spread into the U.S. On the Board of Trade, May soybeans trading a half a cent higher at 8.88 and three quarters of a cent. May corn trading a half a cent lower at 376. May Minneapolis spring wheat trading a penny and a quarter of a cent higher at 531. Kansas City wheat May up three quarters at 462 and three quarters of a cent. May Chicago wheat trading one and a fraction of a cent lower at 535 and three quarters of a cent. Livestock futures were slow to start this morning as the global coronavirus threat shows no sign of abiding anytime soon. On the Board of Trade, May lean hogs trading 30 cents lower at 71.67. The June contract up 12 at 79.82. April feeder cattle trading $1.20 higher at 135.32. The May contract up $1.10 at 136.90. April live cattle up 20 at 113.15. Cash cattle country is slow to start as well this morning following yesterday Days light to moderate trade in most areas. Northern dress trade ranged from 185 to 187 dollars per hundredweight, mostly at 187 dollars, roughly three dollars higher than last week's weighted average basis in Nebraska. Southern live deals were at 115 dollars per hundredweight, generally five dollars lower than the prior week's weighted averages. Asking prices for cattle left on show lists are around 117 dollars plus in the south and 187 dollars plus in the north. Beef cutouts today are expected mixed with light to moderate box movement. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture for the American Ag Network. I'm Kirsten Rall. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, We'll probably stay together. Probably? (laughs) 
It's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. And welcome back to Adams on Agriculture. Again, thanks for joining us. Again, a reminder... Tomorrow and Friday, I'll be in San Antonio for Commodity Classic. Corn growers, soybean growers, wheat growers, sorghum growers, and equipment manufacturers will be there. So it'll be a huge event in San Antonio, and we'll be broadcasting the next two days. Tomorrow, I'll be broadcasting from the Cenex booth on the trade show floor, and then on Friday from the UPL booth. So if you're going to be there, stop by and say hello. Well, it's decision time coming up again for farmers on ARC or PLC. Last time it was a five-year decision, this year, this time a two-year decision. And some things have changed, uh, some things to look at, keep in mind when you make those decisions. Jonathan Coppice is a clinical assistant professor at the University of Illinois. They have done a lot of work at the University of Illinois, uh, putting together some very helpful information, looking at the variables and different things uh, to keep in mind. And I asked Jonathan recently what farmers needed to know in making that ARC PLC decision this time. Yeah, well, the first thing is they uh, we are encouraging everybody to either get into their FSA office as soon as possible or at least get in contact with FSA and get on the schedule so they, they can help manage the workload and the traffic and the timing and, you know, all this sort of logistical challenges of getting the uh, the sign-up completed, uh, which with the end date being March 15th or that Monday, the 16th now. So certainly want to encourage people to get in uh, to, to do their homework in advance and get in there and, and work with FSA. I Other wonder that, for some, sorry. I wonder for some, Jonathan, if they're looking at uh, their last decision and maybe think rethinking the things this time. Yeah, well, we're, you know, one of the things that last time around, this was a five-year decision, and going into it, Art County for corn and soybeans looked to be the more favorable program. Mm-hmm. This time around, it's a two-year decision. You're signing up for 2019 and 2020, so you get a chance to revisit this for the 2021 crop year. But we are in a far lower price environment than we were, and that obviously favors price loss coverage. Whenever you sort of sit in these these lower price environments, the, that fixed reference price in the in the PLC program is going to look more favorable, and it certainly does for corn. In fact, we our work on this, our, our uh, calculations and modeling kind of, puts it as a, a pretty heavy lean uh, towards PLC for, for most corn acres. Now, there are going to be some some isolated counties and areas where there will be a yield hit, uh, particularly from uh, what happened last year with, with the rough spring, that may 
you know, alter that balance a little bit. So we really encourage farmers to run some yield and price data uh, for their county. But, you know, the, the sort of general theory or general thinking at this point is that PLC is going to be a little more favorable over the this year and next year for corn. Yeah, it is amazing how much has changed since the last time. As you said, it's a little different this time. A two-year decision. That, we knew that five-year decision. That was a big decision to make when you're trying to project out five years. Yeah, I mean, the uncertainty is, as we are now painfully aware of looking back, right? This is certainly yeah. a great example when hindsight is really 2020, and we can see what those uh, what those prices actually were. And But, yeah, sitting in, in 2014, early 2015, right, the, the, the price scenario was a lot different than what we, what we ended up getting. And so I think that also is what weighs in on us a little bit uh, in terms of if you're, if you're sort of thinking through just the bottom side risk aspect, um, what we've seen the last few years, uh, you know, really kind of uh, weighs in that prices are not uh, expected to do much on the on the upside, and that that again that that fixed 370 for corn, that fixed 840 for uh, soybeans, begins to look a lot uh, a lot better as a backstop. So, what else should they be thinking about when going into the offices and making those decisions? So what else should factor into how they look at this? Well, I mean, I think the other thing that we've heard a lot of questions about is the ARC individual program, and this is the one that uses your actual farm's yields instead of the county average yield to calculate that revenue. But it's far more complicated because it works across all the crops with base acres on the FSA farm, and if you enroll more than one FSA farm in the state, they average those together. And so it can get to be a little bit complicated in the calculations. But what really is driving a lot of questions and interest this time around is, the, is two things. One, the low expectation that either ARC County or PLC make any payments for corn and soybeans. And I should have mentioned, you know, for wheat farmers, if you have wheat base, it's pretty much a lock that PLC at a 550 is going to pay out. So wheat base is a fairly straightforward, easy decision in favor of PLC. But for 2019 and 2020, we don't expect really any payments from ARC County or PLC but for those farmers where an entire FSA farm was prevent plant, so they had nothing uh, planted and nothing harvested, that means their, re- their revenue for that FSA farm would be zero, which could very well lead to the maximum ARC IC payment, uh, depending on, you know, that, again, that maximum is 10% of your five-year Olympic average benchmark, and it's determined by what you planted in 2019. So there is there's a weird calculation factor in there, but in, in, this, in the case of a prevent plant, it is, it is possible that ARC-IC will maximize payments and thus be the more favorable program, knowing that you're in it for both years, but if we don't expect payments under the other programs, it certainly can weigh in that, that situation. The other case is where, you've, where you planted but had exceptionally low yields in 2019. So those scenarios... Uh, I, you know, I think a lot of farmers are not going to be in that in that case. But but where you have this sort of isolated or FSA farm or two that had the prevent plan or the really low yields, it's probably worth their time to run some calculations on those individual farms to see if, you know, I can put one FSA farm in ARC IC and put the rest of them in ARC County or PLC. You know, there's a way to, to think that through. Are you getting a lot of questions from farmers looking at these decisions? We are. We are getting quite a few questions. We've done. We just did a webinar yesterday for South Dakota. We've got another webinar scheduled for the 24th once we get the latest yield information from USDA. 
Um, and so we've gotten a lot of, of questions. We've got the web-based calculator out there and, and the Excel spreadsheet tool that Gary's designed, the sort of what-if analysis that includes ARC uh, individual. And so we know we're getting a lot of usage of those and a lot of questions as farmers really you know, close in on this decision. Um, but I think also sometimes we can get a little, uh, a little overworked on this decision um, when the realities are for the vast majority of corn and soybean acres, uh, we're not expecting to see much in the way of payments under either ARC or PLC. And so really the decision becomes a pretty straightforward, you know, that, that sort of backstop decision. Well, do I think prices are going to be, are going to go lower in the next year? Uh, it doesn't look like it, at a 385 estimated price for corn that it's going to trigger anything from either program. So you're really kind of making this as a, as a, 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 a downside risk decision and, and less as a, you know, which, which program's going to pay more, uh, with, like I said, with the exception of that arc individual in a few cases. Yeah. But still, you want to make the right decision. Uh, do you find farmers are, many of them are still undecided or just now looking at this closely or, or what are you hearing? What we, what we tend to hear a lot of is, like I said, the, the, the squeakiest uh, wheels or discussions have been around ARC IC, so where somebody had mm-hmm. prevent plant or may think they'd fall into one of those unique situations. Uh, so that tends to be the most questions we hear. Uh, in most of the meetings and general conversations I've had, you hear a lot of farmers just talking about, uh, you know, given what they saw with prices the last few years, that PLC seems like the the safest bet or the smartest sort of, you know, uh, you're putting in that, that hard stop on prices uh, to trigger the payment. So I get a sense that a lot of them that just sort of, you know, use a, a rough estimate or kind of an intuition um, have looked at PLC. Now, there's some potential for soybeans around Art County uh, as well. And so, you know, you kind of, I feel like a lot of them start with, well, it's probably PLC, but let me check this out. Let me check out and see if, if Art County might be mm-hmm. a, a little bit better off for soybeans. Um, but that's kind of the sense I get from it. All right. And where can they get some of your uh, information on this uh, to help them make their decision? Yeah, so uh, on our Farm Doc website at the University of Illinois, if uh, you just type in Farm Doc, and uh, we've got a 2018 Farm Bill uh, toolbox again where we've got all of our resources, everything from the, the web-based calculators to the Excel spreadsheet, what-if analysis tools. Uh, webinars are recorded and linked there, and we've got 5-Minute Farm Doc short video clips as well as the Farm Doc daily articles that we write around these programs. Very good. Jonathan, good to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Good to talk to you. Jonathan Coppas from the University of Illinois with some good information to help you make those ARC PLC decisions. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk with Ryan Finley, CEO of the American Soybean Association, about the new coalition of ag groups called Farmers for a Sustainable Future. Over 20 farm groups participating in this so far, and their mission is to share U.S. agriculture's commitment to sustainability and let people know about the strides that have already been made to help reduce agriculture's environmental footprint. Now, this coalition will serve as a resource for lawmakers and policy decision makers uh, as they consider climate-related policies. And that's going to be a real focus on climate change moving forward, whether you agree or disagree on the causes of it or whether we have it or not. Uh, There are going to be policies put in place concerning 
climate change and agriculture very much needs to be at that table and part of that conversation. So this coalition will serve as a resource for lawmakers as they consider these policies and try to provide some principles as a foundation to help advance adoption of conservation programs. Very important uh, that agriculture is included in this discussion and uh, they will speak out on this with the policymakers moving forward. Next, we'll hear from Ryan Finley, CEO of the American Soybean Association, on his thoughts on this new coalition. Stay with us on AOA. There's more than one way to measure success. Knowing how to measure success on your soybean acres, that's smart. In 2019, trials across 10 Midwest states, Credend Soybeans with Liberty Link GT27 averaged 1.8 bushels per acre more than the competitive Enlist E3 soybeans and 1.5 bushels per acre more than the competitive Roundup Ready to Extend soybeans. So plant your sign of success. Ask your BASF seed advisor about Credend's with Liberty Link GT27. Always read and follow label directions. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Sometimes life is wonderful, and sometimes it's not. Cherish the good, but always be prepared for life's challenges. At Private Healthcare, we provide the peace of mind you deserve. With Private Healthcare, you'll get the coverage you want and healthcare you need. If your employer doesn't supply healthcare coverage and you don't qualify for Medicare or Medicaid, you need to give us a call right now. Private Healthcare is private health insurance for ages 65 and under with medical, dental, vision, and even prescription coverage. When life comes at you unexpectedly, you need to be ready and health insurance is your financial safety net. If you're looking for health coverage at the best price and your annual household income is 35,000 or more, give us a call at 800-664-2612. That's 800-664-2612, 800-664-2612. Have you written a book and want to get it published? Then call Page Publishing at 800-955-4538 immediately. That's 800-955-4538. Page Publishing is looking for authors of all types of books. And unlike most publishers, Page Publishing will take the time to review each and every book submitted to them and give you their feedback. If they like what they read, they'll get your book into bookstores and for sale online at Amazon, the Apple iTunes Store, Barnes & Noble, and other outlets. They handle everything. Editing, cover design, copyright protection, printing, publicity, and distribution. So if you've written a novel, children's book, cookbook, inspirational work, poetry, or a biography and want to get it published, then you need to call Page Publishing and do it immediately. Call 800-955-4538 now for your free author submission kit. Again, for your free author submission kit, call 800-955-4538. That's 800-955-4538. Your road to fame and fortune could very well start with this simple phone call. Call Page Publishing at 800-955-4538 for your free author submission kit. Whether you're on the road or in the field, you need more than typical number two diesel. You need a heavy-duty diesel like Cenex Premium Diesel. It comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. It's the diesel that keeps your equipment out of the shop and restores power by as much as 4.5% and fuel economy by up to 5%. So ask yourself, if you could be any diesel, which diesel would you be? Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. 
Adams on Agriculture. Conversations with policymakers, the movers and shakers in the ag industry, the pros and cons of issues important to you. Cutting through the spin to get to the heart of a topic and giving you the information you need to know. Every weekday, Mike Adams brings you guests important to the ag industry. It's quite simply information farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. It came in waves, ruthlessly eliminating the new spectrum of hard-to-kill grassy weeds in wheat. Everest 3.0 Herbicide. A new formulation makes it brutal on yellow foxtail, foxtail barley, and other tough grasses. Everest 3.0 gets the weeds you see and the ones you know are coming with flush after flush control. Ask your retailer about Everest 3.0. Wave after wave of grassy weed domination. Always read and follow label directions. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, we see this tragic news all too often about death occurring in a grain bin accident. Joining us now is University of Illinois Extension Specialist Doug Gooker. I was reading an article that you wrote recently showing just how quickly things can happen in a grain bin. Adults can be trapped in less than five seconds and submerged in 20 seconds or less. What are some things farmers can do? The first thing they need to do is never go into a grain bin alone. And the other issue is is that if they have a crusting problem in that bin, it could give way and suddenly we're down waist deep or completely submerged and our life is lost. We need to go in with lifelines. We need to make sure we have ladders in working order on the inside of the bin and never go in a bin without someone being nearby that can quickly get help if things turn sideways. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. If your soil could talk, what would it say? If it's healthy, it may already be saying some good things about your future. Because farmers who use soil health building systems that include no-till, cover crops, and diverse species and rotations report greater productivity, profitability, and resiliency to weather extremes. Learn more about what your soil is saying about its health and your future. Contact your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today. This message brought to you by USDA and this radio station. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. 21 farm and ranch groups have launched... Farmers for a Sustainable Future, a coalition committed to environmental and economic sustainability. One of those groups is the American Soybean Association. Their CEO, Ryan Finley, joins us now. Ryan, good to talk with you again. Tell us about uh, this coalition and why it's so important for agriculture to uh, be proactive and have a voice in this conversation that's going on when it comes to sustainability and environmental issues. Hey, Mike, it's great to be on. Great to visit with you again, as always. Uh, So Farmers for Sustainable Future is actually a public-facing coalition that has been working behind the scenes for over a year. And I say it's uh, behind the scenes because last year new members of Congress came in and there there were some really crazy comments made about agriculture, 
greenhouse gas emissions of agriculture today, how farmers actually farm today. And a lot of us in D.C. and around the country were raising our, our, raising our eyebrows to say, this isn't agriculture, and this, these facts that they're throwing out there are just completely wrong. And so this group of, uh, of agricultural commodity groups and other general ag organizations got together and said, how do we educate members of Congress? So that's how it was born, really, to educate members of Congress. And this week, the, the group of 20-plus formally announced publicly that we're going to be out there to educate uh, elected officials, policymakers, media, and the general public on all aspects of the, the benefits of agriculture, but really focusing on that environmental impact. Because there are going to be policies implemented that will very much impact agriculture, and you want to make sure they have accurate information, or if they're working off misperceptions or wrong information, uh, those policies could be very detrimental to agriculture. So it's very important that uh, Ag's voice is heard in this ever-growing conversation, discussion on these environmental issues. That's, that's exactly right. Yep. There is, there's actually a committee. It's called the Committee on Climate Crisis, and it's in the House of Representatives. And so they're looking at policy initiatives all over the place, and some of it is greenhouse gases, some of it is specific to carbon sequestration, others are practices that would happen within the transportation industry or within agriculture. And I think our, our point in communicating, not just with that committee, but other elected officials and policymakers, is to help make sure that if there's a baseline established, that we're all operating from the baseline of how agriculture works today. And agriculture today is very different from 30, year, 30 years ago or 50 years ago. I mean, our ability to produce more per acre with the same or even fewer inputs is remarkable today. And, that's, and, so, and, and it's not just a talking point. I mean, there are numbers to back that up. And so we need to show those numbers to the policymakers so that they understand if, they're, if they actually implement some of this policy, that the policy is, is reflective of agriculture today. And I understand people have varying opinions on, on climate change, but there's no debating <laughs> the fact that there will be policies addressing this moving forward. This, this issue is not going away, no matter how you feel about it. So you, you better be part of uh, this uh, conversation because it's going to happen and it's going to have some tangible effects as far as policy. That's right. That's absolutely correct. And, and we, did a, we did a survey last year of farmers from all over the country. And it, it was pretty fascinating because when we talked about sustainability, there was very little agreement on what sustainability meant. There was a little bit of frustration or even fatigue from some farmers talking about sustainability. But as soon as we talked about conservation, it was near unanimous that farmers were supportive of conservation, wanted to engage in conservation practices, said that that's a long-term part of their farm, is that they have done conservation practices in the past and plan on doing them into the future as well. And in, real, in reality, talking to a policymaker, those are interchangeable. So to a farmer, they're very different, or it may be the terminology that we use is different. But to people that are working on policy in D.C., they're saying, oh, well, yeah, when we talk about sustainability, we're talking about conservation practices. And so our job is to make sure that we're, when we're talking to members of Congress, 
that we're talking about some of the stuff that farmers are really doing today. I, th I think farmers are sustainable. I think farmers do pay attention to the to climate variation. I think that all of this is part of agriculture today. We just need to make sure that we're communicating the right terms to policymakers and, and have a seat at the table. And then you get into issues like, is it voluntary or mandated? Uh, are we talking <laughs> what about incentives? I mean, th then you start getting into a lot of these other things. Uh, in the past, when this discussion has come up, uh, it seems like agriculture has been kind of defensive because it seemed like a lot of um, regulation was going to come down on them and in some cases maybe threaten uh, their economic uh, viability, whether or not they could even stay in business to adhere to some of the things were being proposed. So that's why it's important as well to be part of this discussion. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. I mean, we have millions of acres enrolled in conservation practices. We have millions of farmers that are doing practices today, whether it's cover crops or minimum tillage or no-till. I mean, there's a ton that is going on in agriculture today that, that we just need to communicate. I think some farmers say, well, that's just practice. That's, that's, our, that's how we farm today. That's what we do. In reality, the perception in Washington, D.C., among some policymakers is very different from that. And so we need to be able to explain, hey, agriculture today is remarkable. And what we're doing from minimizing greenhouse gas emissions or sequestering carbon um, and, and then you're right, we do need to have that conversation of what's mandatory and what's voluntary. But uh, at the beginning, helping policymakers understand that you, you can go out there and set mandatory standards, but holy mackerel, we've done quite a bit from the voluntary side over the last 30 plus years. That's Ryan Finley, CEO of the American Soybean Association. That does it for AOA. Thanks for joining us. And tomorrow and Friday, we'll be at Commodity Classic in San Antonio. There's more than one way to measure success. Knowing how to measure success on your soybean acres? That's smart. In 2019 trials, Credenz CZ0419GTLL had a 2.3 bushel per acre advantage over a competitive Asgro variety in North Dakota. So plant your sign of success. Ask your BASF seed advisor about Credenz for a precise variety that fits your field. Always read and follow label directions.